The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Let's ask God's help. Father, there are particular topics which cause even your saints to put up a wall. That those particular areas of weakness and, and sin and disobedience and, and fear that just cause us to tune out and, and to put up a spirit of resistance, oftentimes without even having an awareness. So fathers, we, we come to talk about money this morning. I ask you to keep us from that. It is not fun to sit naked and exposed and transparent before you, the holy, holy, holy God. But Father, you already see and you already know. And all that you have commanded us, Father, is for our absolute supreme good. So I pray, Father, that you would guide my lips now to speak the truth with boldness. You would prepare the hearts here in this room to hear it and to receive it in love. Father, we're asking for you to work in both sides of this encounter this morning. We ask you to do it for our good, for your glory. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. 
Go ahead and stand your feet, please. We're in the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 4. Get to Ephesians, keep going right. Philippians chapter 4, verse 10 through 20. Philippians chapter 4, verse 10 through 20. This is the holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, authoritative word of God. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You're indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of place, facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourself know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gifts, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. All God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. So I, I looked back through my records. And as best I can tell, this is my 744th sermon since becoming your pastor, give or take. And I sure thought I'd been better at it by now. The people that know such things, they say it takes 10,000 hours to get any good at anything, so God willing, we'll get to the 10,000 hour mark. But as best I can tell, I'm somewhere just shy of 750 sermons as your pastor. And as best I can remember, I've, pre I've preached precisely one on giving. And when I, when I first came as your pastor, and we had to make some difficult decisions. We had to have some hard conversations. We had to, we had to address some ingrained sin in the body. And, and I remember in, in the beginning, oftentimes, when we would be faced with a, with a difficult conversation, I would, I would have people, well-meaning people, people who loved me and loved the church, it would say, you, you can't go address that because don't you know that so-and-so is a big giver? Or you can't make that decision because that's going to anger this group over here and don't you know they're faithful givers? And one of my very early mantras as your pastor was, I could not care less about money. Being a fantastic giver doesn't give you some louder voice in the body. Being the widow who places her little mite in the coffers does not give you a lesser voice in this body. I couldn't care less about money. And now looking back five years, I realize how foolish that is. Not because I should have made different decisions based on who gave and who didn't give, but because our Lord cares about money. 
As a pastor of, of a church of Jesus Christ, I'm called to care about the things that God cares about. And one of the things that God clearly cares a whole lot about is money. Not about who has it and who doesn't. Not even about the size of gifts, but rather about what it reveals about our hearts. About the way in which money threatens to drag us away and to destroy our witness and our walk. About the way that money enslaves hearts and it keeps men bound up in fear. Now, I, I knew this formerly because I was, a, I was a banker. You know this. Before I was a pastor, I was a banker. And in the early days of my 20-year career in banking, I was always fascinated at the things people would reveal to me about their personal life. So, some man would be sitting in my office, and next thing you knew, he's talking about some of the most intimate and, 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 and precious moments in his life. And I, for the longest time, I couldn't figure out, why, why are you telling me this? I'm not your, I'm not your priest, and I'm not your, not your counselor. But, but then I came to realize that in the minds of men, once you know about my money, I've taken my clothes off. I'm standing in the doctor's office naked. What, what am I going to hide from you? You've seen my money. You've seen the way that I handle my resources. And so you know more about me than my lips could ever tell you in this moment. This is why God cares about money. And, and I haven't avoided the conversation of, of finance. It's just that hasn't been where the texts have led us. But we have this one little break here between Advent season and the end of the first half of the book of Ephesians. And it has been heavy on my heart. I need you to know that I've been praying and I've been fasting and I've been seeking the Lord for the better part of nine months. By the topic of money and our family, our family. And it occurred to me, okay, well, now you're doing it the Sunday after Thanksgiving when you're going to be at about 60%. And this is a conversation that needs to be had throughout the whole of our congregation. And so those of you that are leaders in various areas, those of you that lead a Bible study or a Sunday school class or some ministry, what I'm going to ask you to do is as soon as this, as soon as we're done for the afternoon, I'm going to upload this, as I always do, to our podcast, and I'm going to ask you to share this with every single person that's been entrusted to your care and give them charge to listen to it. And, and don't just ask them once to listen to it, then leave it be. Circle back and ask them later, did you listen to it? Because here's what else I know to be true. If you refuse to sit under the teaching of God's word on a specific subject, there's something deep there. It's either a deep and abiding love for our sin and a refusal to allow God to bring conviction where it's needed, or it's a haughtiness that believes that couldn't possibly be aimed at me. I'm doing right there. So my challenge is that by the time we all come back, at very least by the end of this Advent season, that every single member of our church would have listened at least once to this message. Not because it's some fantastic message. Not because it's going to be the best and most meaningful sermon you've ever heard on the topic of money. Because I believe God has led us to this moment for this purpose right now. And I remember what it's like to be sinful in the area of giving. I've shared my testimony with many of you. Standing right here in this pulpit before I've shared how I was in one of these rooms right back here behind the sanctuary. And there was a middle-aged man, a very meek man, not a confrontational man in any way. And we were in a room and he said it. I don't know that he was looking at me when he said it, but it felt like he was, he was boring a hole through my head. And I turned 
bright red like a, what's that flower you, you bring out at Christmas that'll kill your cats? Poinsettias. But, but a man named Wade Griffin, we were sitting in the room and he said, if you're not tithing, you're stealing from God. And it, and it felt to me as though he was leaning over the table and poking me in my chest as he said it. And I, and I remember the weight of that moment. And at first, my heart wanted to say, you're not stealing from God. You've never gone into the offering plate and taken money. You've never gone through the church office after hours and taken some supplies and, and, and ran them to your home. What do you mean you've stolen from God? But then again, going back to my banking days, I remember. I remember how one of the first things they taught us to look for whenever you're examining whether or not you want to do business with someone, whether or not you want to enter into a a lending transaction with, with a, a, a corporate customer, one of the things you need to check is, have they paid their payroll taxes? Payroll taxes are unlike other taxes. Here's the way that it works. Brian, you're one of my employees, and what happens is I owe you $100 for the week, but I've got to hold back $20 in taxes to send to the government. I'm holding money that doesn't belong to me, and at the end of the quarter, I've got to send that money on to the government. Well, whenever a man gets in a bind or fear sinks in, where do you want to bet is the first place they go? It's that money that's been left in their hands but belongs to somebody else. It's the easiest and the sneakiest place to steal. And I realized I was robbing God. There was money that he had placed in my hand that never belonged to me. He had entrusted me with it. He had called me to use it. It was a tool to expose my heart. And it was the first place my little hand went. I was robbing from God. But then I realized that it was more than just a, it was more than just a threat. That there was a, a promise and a hope there. Because of course what this man had in mind was the words of God through the prophet Malachi. In Malachi 3. And it's not just, hey if you're not doing this you're robbing God. There was a, there was a promise there. That's the way God works. And he says, put me to the test. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you. And pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I realized that it wasn't just a don't do bad or God's going to spank you. There was a, there was a promise of, of goodness there. Put me to the test. And so I went home and I told Amanda, we're jumping out of an airplane. We were a young family with a baby on the way. Single income and that one not a particularly large one. Living paycheck to paycheck. We had debt. I looked at her and I said, I have no idea where this money is going to come from. But God has said it and we must do it. Trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And I'd heard pastors talk before about the law of the tithe. And so it seemed to me the easiest thing to do was just to take 10% of my gross income. If you make $1,000 a week, 10% of that is 100 bucks. $100 right off the top goes to God, and I'll never look at it again. And I remember I ran down the hall, and I went to the finance secretary, and I said, I've been stealing from God, and you know it. You know it, and I know it. And I'm missing out on blessing from God, and you know it, and I know it. So I need you to take this money from me. I need you weekly or bi-monthly or whatever it was to take this money and don't allow me to put my hands on it any longer. And, and then as I grew in my faith and my understanding of Scripture, and I came to passages like the Sermon on the Mount, where he talked about laying up treasures in heaven. When he talked about God giving to us in accordance with 
the measure we used in our giving. We talked about our heart following after our treasure. When he, when he warned men about the inability to serve two masters, I very quickly realized that if I'm not careful, this 10, 10% can lead me to a place of complacency. I'm good, I'm good, right? Surely my heart's right by God. Surely he wouldn't ask anything more from me than this. And, and I looked around at my life and I realized there's no other area of Christian service. There's no other area of spiritual obedience when we say, I've arrived. I'm done. God would never ask more from me than this. So I began to realize that that 10% was exactly that. It was a starting point. It's a good enough place to begin if I didn't know where to begin. But that God wasn't going to leave me alone. He was always going to be dragging me into deeper, into deeper waters. And the question then began, then, be, then became one of not how much are you going to call me to give, but how much will you allow me to give and how much will you force me to keep? And I don't stand here this morning as one who has said, I've mastered it. Follow me. I'm calling you as one who has sat under deep and abiding conviction from God with regards to finances and money and the way that I think about and handle and give my money. But I'm telling you that I look backwards on that encounter, that man looking me in the eye and saying, if you're not tithing, you're stealing from God. And I immediately look back to that and am filled with such gratitude and love for that man that he had the heart to look me in the eye and say that. So, I recognize as one who has sat on the other side of this conversation and as, again as one who has had a background dealing with people and personal finances I realize that when it comes to the matter of money it is for many people it's far more emotional than it is rational it's far more believing my lying eyes believing the pull of the world around me than just believing the straightforward promises of God it would be easy enough right I would just I would just say to you a I just present to you this verse here that my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in Christ Jesus. Go, do well. But I know that's not the way the heart works. As I prayed earlier, I know how we, we put up this, this resistance to it. And I think that's why so often when we find our Lord talking about money in scripture, he either immediately precedes it or immediately follows it with a reminder that we don't need to be anxious. Because here's what's happening. There's some of you right now. There, there are two very strong emotions going on in this room for some of you. For some of you, it's anger. I know it because I felt it. You're angry because you feel like I'm reading your mail. I'm poking something that hurts. Or there's fear and sadness. You desire to do good in this area, but I've got debt. And I've got children. And, I, and I've got all these things surrounding me. And so God is so quick to come in there and say, don't be anxious, little children. Don't be fearful, little children. Put me to the test, little children. And that's my hope for us. It's not about, it's not about the money. When I say I don't care about money, I don't care about money as money. As we'll see here from the Apostle Paul, he doesn't care about gifts as gifts. He cares about the heart. And I desperately want us to be a people who have been set free from miserliness and stinginess. More, more than that, I want us to be a people who have been set free from anxiety and from fear. I want to be a people who, 
does hard things, not just in the, in the interactions that we have and not just in Christian service, but with our pocketbook, with our resources. And so oddly, I chose for us a text in which the apostle Paul is basically saying, don't send me any more money. He says there in verse 11, I'm not speaking of being in need. In verse 17, he says, I'm not seeking a gift. In verse 18, he says, I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied. In the Apostle Paul's perspective, this is a statement and teaching on contentment. 1 Timothy 6, 6 6-7, Paul says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these things we will be content. How counter-cultural is that? Give me food, give me clothing, give me somewhere to lay my head, and with that I will be content. But I strive for something. I strive for something that's called great gain. What is a thing that is great gain? It's godliness with contentment. And so the Apostle Paul is talking about his own heart in this matter. He says, I am content. And this isn't, this isn't a stoicism. This isn't some type of a, a Spartan mindset of, of self-mastery. I can just, I can suck it up and, and, and live on next to nothing. And it's, it's, a, it's a matter of self-exaltation and, and, and self-control. That's not what he's talking about here. Nor is he talking about, and this is the one that It was very familiar to me. Your parents would look at you and say, look around at how much worse everybody else has it. Why are you not content with what you have? That's not what Paul's talking about either. He's talking about a posture of the heart. He's talking about tranquility and a peace that comes from those who know Christ. Who have received Christ. Who count the rest of this world as as dung and loss. Isn't that what he says in this same letter? I, I count it all as nothing because I know Christ. He has come to dwell in my heart richly and I've been strengthened in my inner man and I've come to a place where I'm I'm content. I've I've learned it. It doesn't come naturally to me. It doesn't come naturally to Paul, this this sense of contentment. That's why he says in verse 11, I've learned. I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. Paul says, I learned this through the school that nobody ever wants to sign up for. The school of God's providence. The school in which he strips away everything that I once counted as gain. And he shows me that he's still there and that he's enough. I've learned contentment in that. As Thomas Watson calls it, it's an art of divine contentment. Or Jeremiah Burroughs, as his book, calls it the rare jewel of Christian contentment. Not a thing that comes naturally. And that is in part why men are so stingy at times in their giving to God. They're not content with where that will lead them. If I'm obedient to you in this area, God, that will lead me into a lifestyle that I can't find contentment. I can't be happy there. I can't be satisfied in Christ. And so Paul is holding out in front of them the picture of true Christian contentment. I've learned how to be brought low and I've learned how to be hungry and I've, and I've learned how to be despised and hated and abounded. I've learned in all those things to experiencing them that you're enough. And I've, I've learned their contentment. And he, he flips it on his head and he said, I've also learned how to abound. Wait, 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 time out. Who has to struggle for contentment when you're rich? 
Who has to struggle for contentment when you're well fed? Who has to struggle for contentment whenever you're living in a nice, fancy house? Well, the answer is everyone. Because the kind of contentment that Paul desires for us to have, this godly contentment that's counted as great gain, it's not tied to your circumstances. Show me a poor man who's discontent, and I'll show you one who would become rich and still be discontented. You know this. I know many of you, you've lived through times of lean and through times of plenty. And if our heart doesn't find its rest and contentment in Christ Jesus when we're eating rice and beans and barely scraping by, you could have a million dollars and still your contentment would not be found in him. It would only be found in his gifts and in his provision. So this is the kind of contentment that he's pointing them to. And the situation itself doesn't lead us there. Just being poor doesn't teach you contentment. I know plenty of poor people who are still discontented. They live ages in that place and they never learn the lesson. That's why the Apostle Paul says, I can do all things. This is often misquoted, taken out of context. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He's talking about finding contentedness. Again, he's been strengthened in his inner man. He, he has tasted of that which is best. He has traded up in his life. And he says, therefore, I'm content with a little bit. Do I have somewhere to lay my head? There I'm content. Do I have one outfit to put on my body and some, some bread to eat? With that, I will be content because I've got Christ. Therefore, and only therefore, am I able to have much and still find true contentment. Then if I have some steak and have an extra change of clothes and have a pillow to lay my head on, then I know true contentment that's not bound up in the stuff. And therefore, I don't have to be afraid of losing the stuff. If my contentment is bound in my circumstances, then all that goes away when the circumstances change and you're constantly in fear. You're constantly filled with anxiety. What then will be left for me? What then will be left for us? And he says, I desire for you because I have found myself the secret to contentment. I found everything I desire in Christ. And he's talking to a people who themselves have joined in in this suffering and loss. Not only does he in chapter 3 talk about suffering the loss of all things for the sake of Christ, but he begins his letter thanking God for these people. He says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. He's saying you've been invited to the same struggle, to the same sense of loss. We're equally yoked in this thing. And so Paul is a man who is in the middle of suffering. He's in the middle of lean times and he's writing to a people who are in the middle of lean times and suffering themselves. Now, if, if you remember the setting, he wrote this letter to the Philippians, it seems to me, right about the same time he wrote his letter to the Ephesians. Maybe a few years later, he's still in prison in Rome. And he, he's writing to encourage them in the middle of their suffering. He's writing to warn them about false teachers. He's also writing to thank them for their gift. So that when we get to chapter 4, he tells them, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. This is verse 4. Verse 5 says, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He's saying, I know you're suffering. As I am suffering. And I'm telling you, you take your request to God. You give him thanks for all that he has given you. You find your contentedness and your happiness and your peace and your tranquility in Christ. 
and you'll find something that can never be stripped away, not in the lean times or not in the rich times. And therefore, before he moves on to his benediction, before he moves on to his final greetings, he thanks them for a very specific gift. Apparently there was a man named Epaphroditus and he was a Philippian and he had come to visit Paul there in jail. And if you remember the flow of this letter from your own reading, you'll remember that this man got very sick, sick to the point of death. And Paul knew that the people back home in Philippi may have been worried about him or because they'd heard news of his illness or they may have been wondering what kept the dude so long. And so he's sending word back to him, commending Epaphroditus. Look, you need to receive this man and, and honor him for the way in which he has, he has served me on your behalf. But he doesn't stop there. He wants to thank them for a gift that this man brought them. Brought to Paul. And, and now we know that prison in Rome in the first century, it was not the same as prison in 21st century America. They, they didn't guarantee you three hots and a cot and you lived on the government dime. You had to provide for your own care. That's what we read at the end of the book of Acts. This is the imprisonment that I think Paul is writing from. In Acts 28 verse 30 it says, He lived there for two whole years at his own expense. And he welcomed all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So he's there and he has to provide for his own care, but he can't go away and work. And so he's, he's dependent upon the, the mercy and the gifts and the, and the support of others, specifically churches like this one, if he's going to continue his work, if his life's going to continue, and if he's going to continue in the ministry that he's been called to. And so he says here in verse 10, I rejoice in the Lord greatly. Now that you have at length revived your concern for me. Now, my parents will tell you that I am a horrendous gift receiver. Ever since I was a little boy, I just, I never knew how to receive gifts. And to this day, I'm not great at it. I've become better as I've become a pastor and many of you are so kind and you'll bring me a cake or you'll bring me a gift or you'll bring me something of encouragement. And I've, I've learned, it wasn't that my heart wasn't grateful. It's just, I never knew what to say. How am I supposed to think about this thing? I'm supposed to think about this gift and the kindness that you're, that you're extending to me. And so here we have the Apostle Paul and he's thanking firstly God for the gift. He, he, he asked the Corinthian church, what do you have that you didn't receive? He's saying to the church in Philippi, whatever you gave to me, it came ultimately from God. It was God who put it in your hands. It was God who put it on your heart to give to me. Therefore, it is God who will, in the end of this all, get the glory. And so I thank my God. I thank the Lord that he has used you and, and molded you and given you these provisions and then that you've been faithful to bring them to me. But look what he says here. This could sound like a bit of a backhanded compliment, kind of like a passive aggressive jab. He says, I rejoice in the Lord that now at last you've revived your concern for me. Is he saying, finally, you cared enough to send me something? I've been, I've been waiting here long enough and now finally you've shown up. No, not at all. Because he goes on to say, for you were indeed concerned for me but you had no opportunity. Now, I don't know what he's saying here. Is he saying, look, you had concern and love for me, but I wasn't in the dire straits before that I am now. And so now this opportunity has shown up. Or is he saying it took you a while to send Epaphroditus to, to me? Or maybe it took a while for you to collect the money. I'm not, I'm not entirely sure, but he's making clear. My imprisonment has brought you this opportunity. That's so much of what God is doing. You realize this, right? I love the show The Office, the sitcom The Office, just because I can watch it mindlessly, not even think about it, relatively clean, it's okay, I can, I can watch it. And, and, and 
You, you realize these people, they work in a paper company, not because that has anything to do with anything. That's just a setting where all this stuff happens. These people are going to bump into these people, and this is going to be the interaction that they wanted to show you, and it's going to happen in this setting. Now, I'm not saying that there's meaningless moments. There are no meaningless moments. But what I'm saying to you is the moments don't mean what you first think they mean. It's not about the imprisonment. It's not about their poverty or their gift. It's about the opportunity for them to revive their concern for the Apostle Paul. That word revive, it's like a plant that has gone dormant in the winter and then comes back in the spring. The love was always there. But now finally the opportunity has come. And Paul knew all along, even when they weren't sending him gifts, Paul knew all along how much the Philippian church loved him. They had proven it to him, not only in word, not only in prayer, but in deed. Look down at verse 15 and see what he says there. He says, And you Philippians yourself know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia... No church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Those of you that are familiar with the flow of the narrative in the book of Acts, you know that in Acts 16, Paul has a vision of a man from Macedonia saying, please come and help us. And he understood that to be God calling him to go there and to preach the gospel. And so he goes to Macedonia and Philippi is in the, the northern portion of Macedonia and he begins there to preach the gospel and that's where he meets um, Lydia and, and the women there by the river and he meets the Philippian jailer and there's great conversion and the church is planted. This is his second missionary journey. And then he goes down to Thessalonica and Berea and Athens and eventually all the way down to Corinth. And if you know your letter to the Corinthians, you remember that Paul talks there often about the fact that he didn't take anything from them. He didn't get any financial support from the church in Athens. He says, you know, I was entitled to it, but I didn't. How was Paul able to go there to the Corinthians and minister to them and not take from them? It's because of the Philippians. Because those who had supplied his need, they had given generously. He says once and again, this was an ongoing giving, not, not a one-time deal. Listen, we praise God whenever somebody has opportunity to give a one-time gift, right? You sell something, you get a bonus, something happens and you come and you say, here, this is a one-time deal now. Don't expect this next month. Here's a one-time gift. And that's valuable and precious in the sight of God. But he's praising these men for their recurring and ongoing year after year. This is some 10 years later. He's writing them 10 years after he had first encountered them. And he says, still, you're supporting me. Still, you're showing your concern through your financial giving. And they had not only joined Paul in giving towards his ongoing ministry, but they'd also expressed a similar heart towards the less fortunate, towards the poor. You remember how Paul was out on this missionary journey and he was collecting money for the, for the saints that were back in Jerusalem because of a famine that had come. And when he's talking to the Corinthians and he's exhorting them to get right in this area, 2 Corinthians 8, he says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that had been given among the churches of Macedonia. Philippi was one of the leading cities in the district of Macedonia. He says, I want you to know about what's been going on through the Macedonians. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty, they have overflown, excuse me, overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they have given according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. 
He's saying they begged us, not, not that they could participate in some small way, not that they could give according to their needs, but out of their poverty. They begged for the right. This was the heart of these Philippians. Their heart in supporting not just the ministry of Paul, but, but the care of the poor, those who are less, less fortunate. And Paul is saying that they have done this, verse 15, in the beginning of the gospel. He doesn't mean going all the way back to the cross of Jesus Christ, or he doesn't mean to the day of Pentecost. He means from the moment they heard the gospel. This was their immediate response. You remember the wee little man Zacchaeus that climbed up the tree? Jesus comes and he goes to his house. And what was Zacchaeus' immediate response? He says, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone, anything, I restore it fourfold. The Lord didn't demand of this demand this from Zacchaeus this was a spontaneous response of, of joy and gratitude and, and, and repentance from this man I want you to think about the stories that we hear of the early church in the book of Acts it, it tells us about how they were, they, were, they were bringing their money into the church and laying it at the apostles feet so that this work could continue and that the poor would be cared for but do you, do you remember those stories where it wasn't just their increase it wasn't just they got $100 wage and they took 10% off the top and they, they brought it to the church. They were selling fields. They were selling their resources. You know, that field was someone's retirement plan. That field was someone's 401k. And he says, these men were so overwhelmed by the gospel they had received. They were so overjoyed at the thought that salvation had come and been freely given to them that they couldn't help themselves. They didn't just give off the top. They started selling things to figure out, how can I give? Talk about countercultural. Call your estate planner today and say, my pastor has challenged me to this. So I'm cashing it all in. I'm giving it to the kingdom of God. But that's where they were. This is the heart of the people who see and value the gospel. What does Jesus compare the kingdom of God to? It's a treasure in a field. What does a man do? He sells everything he has to go buy the field. The pearl of great price. The man will give everything he has just to have the pearl. Now listen, you're not purchasing the kingdom. This isn't quid pro quo. You give to God and therefore you receive salvation. You receive the kingdom. The kingdom has been given and this is your overflow of your joy and gratitude and excitement for all that he's been doing. He says, in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into par uh, partnership with me in giving and receiving. There's a giving and receiving in this transaction. And they watched as the Apostle Paul, as he poured out everything that he had. Go back to the second chapter in Philippians. It's Philippians 2, 17. He says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, guess what happens when you die? Guess what happens to all your resources when you die? You forfeited them all. And he says, if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering and forfeit my very life for the sake of the kingdom, I am glad and rejoice with you all. So they had watched the witness of this man as he has gladly forsaken all for the sake of the kingdom. So overwhelmed with joy and gratitude and love and adoration for Christ whom he encountered on the road to Damascus. And it's led them to have the same kind of heart, knowing everything that they had received thinking at nothing to give in, in exchange for it. What could God possibly ask us to give that would surpass that which he has given to us? I'm talking purely spiritually at this point. 
As Paul again talks to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 9, he says, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? We've given you the words of life. We've given you the gospel of the kingdom. We've brought you salvation in the name of Christ Jesus. And it would be too much for you to give to us materially, to provide for our needs, to give up your physical resources that you're going to let go of all at the end of time anyway? Certainly not. And so that's where these men are. Again, this wasn't tit for tat. They weren't giving to Paul because they expected something in return. There, there's some doubt in this letter to the Philippians. You remember, he says, I don't know whether I'm going to live or whether I'm going to die. He seems pretty convinced that he's going to live. He said, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's what's going to happen. It's for your benefit that I continue on. And so I, I believe that God's going to leave me here. I'm going, to, I'm going to come to you soon with Timothy. But, but they're not giving because they expect something back in return from the Apostle Paul. They said, we've already received so much. What does a man value his soul? How much value did you place on the gospel of Jesus Christ? So it overflows with this. They have a desire to see the Apostle Paul cared for and his ministry to continue, that God would be glorified and that others would come into the kingdom. They want others to share in this gift that they have received. And not only is this an overflow of, of, of gratitude on their part, they see this as a participation in that gospel work. That's what he says there. He says, no church entered into par partnership with me. No church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you. This was their partnership. How, how, how are they going to partner and participate and share in the work of Paul? Through prayer. Through sending a man like Epaphroditus. And through their giving. Their financial participation. This word for partnership, it's the same word that we get, our, uh, we get fellowship from. Koinonia. We see it again, that same word in verse 14. He says, it was kind of you to share, same word, to share in my trouble. He's talking about fellowship, participation in the gospel work. As a matter of fact, you go back to the introduction when Paul is thanking God for these men, this is what he's thanking them for. How bizarre to think that a pastor would go before God and thank him for the financial participation of the people in that church. But he's saying, I thank my God for, in all my remembrance of you, Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your participation, koinonia, in the gospel from that first day until now. It was right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. He says you participated with me. How? They didn't all go to prison with Paul. One man went, Epaphroditus. You didn't all spend time here caring for me physically in my need. You didn't go out on the road with me sharing the gospel. You didn't plant churches with me. How did you participate? Through prayer and giving. And in that way, you have a participation and a share in what he's doing. These people love the gospel. Of course they love the gospel. These people love the salvation that they had received. And that drove them, not only as an act of thanks, but it made them want to join their life to the thing. Do you recognize the gospel work that the kingdom is, is, is playing out right before your eyes? Do you see the ministry of the gospel that is playing out right before your eyes? And is your heart not drawn to say, I want to be a part of that. I, I want to get in on that. This is what he's talking about. Verse 16, he says, even in Thessalonica, Thessalonica was a richer church. But he says, even when I was there, it was you who sent help for me in my need. 
And I know I've talked to enough people that don't give, that give a penance to the work of Jesus Christ here in this church. And, and I realize that there, there's not a one of them that I've visited with that would say, look, I'm not passionate for the gospel. I'm not overwhelmed by the work that God has done in, in bringing me to eternal life. But I withhold in this area. But you remember what Jesus said, excuse me, what James said, the Lord's brother, but these are the words of Christ. James said in James 2.15, he says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed or lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled without having given them the things that they need for their body, what good is that? To say, I love the gospel of Jesus Christ, I'm just not going to give to the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I love the work of the ministry. I love the bride of Christ. I love the work that God is doing by his spirit here in this church. I'm just not going to financially participate. I'm just not going to give generously and joyfully and ongoingly to that work. What does that say? And I know most of you don't tend to think of it like this. And I know how much some of you wish this sermon would end right about now. But I ask you, what does your giving say about the way that you value the gospel of Jesus Christ? What does your giving say about your participation and your share and your fellowship in the gospel of Jesus Christ here in this church? And, and I know how easy, again, I feel like I keep needing to give these caveats. I understand how fierce things seem because I need you to know that anybody that's ever been through our membership class, any of you that have joined our church in the last five years or any existing members that have gone through our membership class in the last five years, you know that one of the things we touch on in there is giving. We talk about what are the expectations of being a member of First Baptist Church of Crosby? It's that you'll join together in corporate worship. This is the main gathering of the church on the Lord's Day that you'll be here, that you'll be a part of a Bible study, whether it's Sunday morning or weekday, you'll be a part of a Bible study. That, that you will personally study the word and, and, and spend time in prayer with God. That you will watch your witness out in the community, that you'll walk in a holy way, and that you will participate financially in the work of First Baptist Church of Crosby. We have that conversation. And then I look at people, every single person that has joined this church in the last five years, I've looked them in the eye and said, are you committing to give generously and joyfully and in an ongoing fashion financially to the ministry of God here at First Baptist Church of Crosby, and I've yet to have somebody say no. I tell them, I warn them beforehand, listen, there's a difference between being a visitor and being a member. You want to visit this church, you can visit as long as you want. We will love you, we will care for you, we will support you. When your family has a need, we will show up if possible and meet that need. The full resources of First Baptist Church of Crosby are at your disposal. How many times have I said that? And people flinch, like all of it? You don't have to be a member in order to receive that kind of care. But if you're going to join your life and you're going to count yourself in fellowship and community and participation with First Baptist Church of Crosby, this is what it looks like. There's incredible blessing that comes with membership, no doubt. But there's also responsibility and expectation, not from me as a pastor, but from God. So he's saying, 
This is your participation. Now, it's absolutely possible for men to give, to give large sums to the kingdom of God, to give large sums to this church and still have a heart that's not right. I've seen it. That's why Paul, again, it seems as though Paul spends a lot of time bragging on the Macedonians to the Corinthians. He says in 2 Corinthians 8, he says, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Their heart was to us first. They didn't just give their money, they gave their hearts. So it's absolutely possible for somebody to write large checks to the church and never have real participation and fellowship and never have a real heart that cherishes and delights in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But on the flip side, it is very, very, very rare that somebody either does not give or gives only a penance to the work of God in and through his church that their heart is right. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So, Paul knew from experience that that was not the heart of the Philippian church. Their hearts were right and they had proven it. In fact, he, he needs to make sure they don't send him any more money. That's what he's saying, right? He's like, I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm, I'm not writing you to ask for more money. I'm not writing you to ask that you would show up and do something else for me. I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm well supplied. But at the same time, he wants them to know, but I'm, I'm thankful for the gift. Again, Paul wasn't a stoic. He wasn't he wasn't some Spartan that, that, that was just trying to show how tough he was by living on nothing. He said, I rejoice in the gift and it was kind of you to share in my trouble. You remember at the end of his life in his second letter to Timothy, he's saying, hey man, when you come, bring my cloak and bring the books and bring, and bring the parchments. I, 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 I'd like the stuff. It's better to have the stuff than to not have the stuff. And I, and I thank God that you, that you brought it. But he's saying, I'm, I'm, good, I'm good here. I'm good and I'm content not just because you sent the stuff. I'm content because I have Christ. But I do have a concern for you in this giving. That's what he says in verse 17. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. And this is key. This is where I am as your pastor. I've checked my heart. The heart is deceitful. It is wicked. I've brought it before the Lord. And I've said, Lord, Expose my heart, reveal my heart, show me if this is not where I am. And I'm sure I'm not perfectly there, but I'm telling you, this is my heart as I stand before you right now. It's not the gift that I seek. I am well supplied. I went to Nymphas Friday night, Saturday night. When was it? Friday night. I had ceviche and enchiladas. I didn't get my tres leches. I'm well supplied. First Baptist Church of Crosby is well supplied and will be well supplied. It's not the gift that I seek. It's the fruit that increases to your credit. He's saying that for the Philippians, it, 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 it's not about the gift. God will do his work here. But what I desire for you and what I delight in for you is the fruit that increases to your credit. When you go back again to his his opening prayer and, and, and psalm of thanksgiving for the Philippians in chapter one, he's, he speaks about his prayer for them that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ 
to the glory and praise of God. He says there's a fruit that's being produced here. Christ is the vine and you are the branches. And if you're abiding in him, you're going to be producing this fruit. And you're seeing fruit that's being produced right now. Here in Rome, people are hearing the gospel. That's fruit that's being produced by your faithfulness. Fruit that's being produced because of the work that Christ is doing in your life. And I long for you to have that fruit because here's the way that the kingdom of God works. He works in you. He abides in you. He molds and he shapes you so that you produce fruit. It's his fruit. He's the one that produced the fruit. And guess who gets the credit? You do. You get the credit. This credit to your account. It's a financial term. There's a ledger in heaven. And there's a credit next to your name because of something that Christ has done in you. And that's what I want. That's my desire. Because as you see this fruit being born right now, it's, a, it's an affirmation that you're his. You, you know a tree by the fruit. You see the fruit and it gives you assurance and hope. I'm really his. What other sense would it make for me to give money that I feel like I don't have? What other sense would it make when I'm living paycheck to paycheck to say, the pastor said it and so I'm going to do it. The word of God says it and so I'm going to do it. That makes no earthly sense. And so you see yourself doing this and it makes you wonder, man, I must, God must really be doing something here. I must really be shaping my heart and my affections. But then more than that, he's saying, there's a ledger and there's a credit next to your name and when all is said and done, what you'll find is that you're the one who is most benefited from your giving, not the recipient. It's you who receive the benefit. That's why the Lord says in Luke 12, 32, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So sell your possessions and give to the needy. Again, it is, it is shocking. Go back and look at how often they're talking about selling their goods. Selling for the sake of giving. Getting lean for the sake of giving. Forsaking earthly things for the sake of giving. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that will not grow old. With a treasure in heaven that does not fail. Where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You're sending the money ahead to heaven. You're storing up for yourself treasures in eternity. I don't know what this looks like, but the Lord says it. It must be true. But it, it requires a radical change in the way that we think about money. I've heard, and it breaks my heart. I, this is going to be a little bit long this morning. I apologize, but I only get one crack at this. I, I've heard people, and it breaks my heart, that will say, you know what? If I don't like what that church is doing, I'll vote with my pocketbook. If they don't call the pastor that I like, I will vote with my pocketbook. If they make decisions that I don't support, I will vote with my pocketbook. This is completely twisted and upside down. Beloved, you're not giving a dime to First Baptist Church of Crosby. You're giving it all to God. That's the way we've got to view this, and that's the way Paul views it. What's he say in verse 18? A fragrant offering. A sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. This was boring stuff. We don't know what they sent to Paul, but I'm picturing like a coat, a pillow, some, some food, some, some grain maybe, or some olives or something. I, I don't know what they grew there. But this would have been just boring, ordinary, everyday things to sustain Paul in the ministry that he had to do. Just as you go and you go into church center and you set up your little automatic giving and it comes out once a week or whenever it is, and guess what that goes to? Lights and air conditioning and my salary and health care. Just ordinary, boring, everyday kind of stuff. 
He's saying, do you know what it actually is? It's a sacrifice to God. It's a pleasing aroma. That's Old Testament. That's Old Testament picture here. A fragrant offering. Think about Noah when he gets off of the ark after God has spared him and his family from his wrath. And what does Noah do? He offers a burnt offering. And it's a pleasing aroma. It's delightful to the nostrils of God. Do you understand? Every time you put a check in that box or every time you, you hit send on a gift online, there's, a, there's an offering. There's a, there's a fragrance. There's an aroma going up to God. And he delights in it and it pleases him. And you look around and you go, yeah, well, I just, I just kept the lights on for a day. Yeah. Yeah. But do you see how much more? God knew Noah's heart. He knew the heart of the Philippians. God knew the faith that Noah had exhibited in believing God's promises. He knew the faith that the Philippians had. But still, there was something precious about these gifts. And so he says it was an act of worship. It was a costly sacrifice. It's meant to be costly. It's meant to be sacrificial. You remember when David is buying the, the threshing floor there in, um, in Jerusalem, and he's going to offer up this burnt offering to the Lord. And the guy that owned the threshing floor came to King David. He said, no, 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 please just take it. Take the ox, take the threshing floor, build your altar, just offer to God. Do you remember what King David said to that man? He said, no, I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that costs me nothing. How many of us, we determine our giving based on what's going to cost us nothing? As in, what am I never going to miss? What check can I put in the offering plate? What number can I enter into the phone and make sure that I never miss it? That I never go without it? Oh, it'll cost me something. It costs you the money, but it doesn't cost you anything. There is no sacrifice. That was the heart of the Philippians. That's the giving that Paul is rejoicing in. And he wants them to, to understand what they have done. And I want you to understand what I'm calling you to do. But again, the Apostle Paul, better pastor than I, he knows how anxiety and fear and doubt seep in at moments just like this. Remember, I compared it when I first started giving. I compared it to jumping out of an airplane. There's been, there's been a handful of moments in my life, and that's the way we refer to them in my house, at least between a man and I. There have been a handful of moments where I felt like God was calling me to do something, and he left me a little. I've got a short leash because God knows my faithlessness and my, my weakness. And so some of the biggest decisions, the most precious decisions I've made in my life, God called me to make them over the span of like 15 seconds. And so I know that there's some of you right now that you had an opportunity. If there was just a, okay, I'll just jump now. I'll just jump now. I know what's going to happen. We're going to leave this place and the enemy comes with fear and doubt and anxiety and all the rest. And he knows this. This is the heart of Peter. What, what do we have? After seeing a rich young ruler walk away, he says, Lord, we've left everything to follow you. What's left for me? Do you think this? God, if I give the way you're calling me to give, what then will be left for me and for my children and to service my house? Yes, I have Christ and I get it. I mean, Peter's walking with Christ. I know I have you and I know I have the kingdom of God and I know I have treasures in heaven, but that could be 60 years from now. What about right now? 
We're a people of the now. And, and, and it's hard. I can, your kids can hardly wait until Christmas. They're going to peak in the gifts between now and Christmas. They can hardly... Delayed gratification is just not a thing that we're good at by nature. And so the thought that, yeah, there's treasures for me in heaven someday, but I can't eat now. I can't pay my bills now. That's the word that the devil is going to bring into your life. And so that's what he says in verse 19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That and connects it to everything that came before. This is not the kind of promise that the unfaithful man can claim. This is not the promise that the unbelieving man can claim. Now, to be clear, God provides for the needs of the Gentiles. He says, look, don't worry about what you're going to eat and what you're going to drink and what you're going to wear and where you're going to live. The Gentiles worry about these things, and I provide. It rains on the just and the unjust alike. I take care of the birds. I take care of the flowers. He knows what you need. He's numbered the days of your life. He's numbered the days of your life, and he doesn't forget that you need food to get there. He doesn't forget that you need a house to make sure you don't freeze to death. The days of your life have been numbered. The hairs on your head have been numbered. And he knows every last resource that you need to get there. He's not going to forget. But this is pointing to something so much more. This is pointing to the reality that he says, I've called you to something greater, to a greater ministry, to a greater, to a greater work. He says, my God will make you sufficient for this. 2 Corinthians 9, he says, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, all sufficiency, all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. God will provide for your needs. Everything you need to make it to the finish line, to that last breath that he has already ordained for you. God says, I know what you need and I will give it. If you don't need it, let me reverse that. If you don't get it, that means you didn't need it. And no amount of robbing from God in order to hold on to those things is going to extend your life by one second. Remember the man that built a second barn for himself? What did the Lord say? You fool. You fool. You rob from me to store more for yourself, and tonight your life will be demanded of you. So quit worrying about those things and worry about the greater things. Seek first the kingdom of God and trust that in every way, in everything, at all times, my Father will give you everything you need for this good work. Everything to be content in Him. Everything to accomplish the ministry that He's called you to. Everything that is necessary to bear this fruit that will be credited to your account. My Father will cause you not just to have enough, not just to squeak by, to abound, to overflow in every good work. These are the words of a man that didn't know whether he's going to have his head chopped off or not. Eventually he would. But he says, I've run the race and I've finished well. And he says that God's going to do this in accordance with his glory in Christ Jesus. His endless and infinite riches. Accordance with means in proportion to. This isn't God peeling off a couple of hundos from his stack. This is his endless provision. I reach in there and according to that, according to that, I will meet every need that you have in Christ Jesus. I had a friend in college. One of my, one of my groomsmen at my wedding, a dear friend, he grew up in a house of 11 kids and had a fantastically rich father. Just wealthy, wealthy, like real money. And I'll never forget as we would be driving, we were college kids, we didn't have squat. 
He drove a beater car just like the rest of us. Like his dad wasn't just giving him money to go blow, right? He, he was poor like the rest of us, eating, on the, eating at the training table and, and trying to figure out enough money to go buy some 29-cent hamburgers from McDonald's. But I'll never forget that we would be riding through town. You know, we were in the, the medical center, so there's plenty of homeless people, less fortunate people there. This dude would routinely, anytime he saw a homeless person, go over to the ATM, stick in his debit card, pull out money, and give it away. And you know, ATMs don't give out anything less than 20s. The same guy, I remember, on his, at his uh, wedding rehearsal, we're all there waiting. I was in his wedding, he was in my wedding, and we're there at his wedding rehearsal, and his wife is there, and the family is there, and we're all waiting to get this thing kicked off. And this dude's nowhere to be found. He shows up 20 minutes late to his own wedding rehearsal. I'm like, dude, where were you? He said, man, I saw some homeless guys, so I went to Academy and bought them a bunch of tents. I said, dude, you don't have money for that. Dude didn't have a job yet. He was driving the same beater car as the rest of us. He said, my, my dad, my dad will give me money for this. I trust that my father is delighted when I do this work. How much more so? His dad was rich, but there was an end to his riches. How much more our Heavenly Father who abounds in all things, infinite wealth, infinite riches in Christ Jesus. How much more will he supply all that we need? And yet, you remember the story of the widow there with Elisha. He said, you got to bring to me empty vessels. You couldn't fill already filled vessels. And so how many of us are sitting there with full vessels, refusing to give them away and refusing to pour them out and wondering why God isn't bringing more filling? Wondering why he isn't causing us to abound. One more, one more. I'm sorry, I know. I'm looking at some of you and I know that some of you, you're already thinking, yeah, but I've already made some financial decisions in life. I've already bought this house. I've already gone into this debt on this truck. I've already married this person. I've already had these kids. I've already committed this. And you might be thinking, well, but it's too late, right? Like if I'd known this story when I was a 20-year-old like you were and just set my standard based on, look, this money isn't mine and so I give it, I never think about it, then it would have been easier. But now I'm already in the middle of this game. I'm, I'm in the middle of the stream. What can I do? Surely it's too late. Well, there's a story. I'd call you to go back and read it this afternoon. It's 2 uh, Chronicles 25. King Amaziah of Judah, he is going out to war. And so he gathers together all the men of Judah, and it's 300,000 fighting men. And he decides that that's not enough. And so he goes into Israel, and he gathers together there from Israel some uh, mercenaries. 100,000 100, fighting men from Israel. And, and the Lord sends his servant to him, and he says, Hey, man, don't take those men from Israel. Don't take the, I won't bless your work. I will not bless what you're doing if you take these 100,000 men from uh, from, from, Israel, from excuse me, the northern tribes of Israel. You take the 300,000 from Judah. And this man's response, maybe one of the funniest lines in all the Bible, the king of Judah, his response to God at this is, but God, I've paid them 100 talents of silver already. What about that money? I didn't get a receipt. I can't get a refund. That's a lot of money. I, I did the math. It's like 3 million bucks. And his response to the man of God was, the Lord is able to give you much more than this. You're not too far gone. You're not too far invested. You are not too deeply in debt. The Lord your God can give you far more abundantly than that. And so I'll plead with you this morning.
If you're someone who knows that you are not right with God with regards to giving in and through this church, if you know that you have been stingy and miserly with regards to God and his gospel ministry, I am pleading with you this morning to beseech the throne of heaven and ask him to give you strength. And if you find yourself, after much prayer and wrestling, you find yourself still unable to figure it out, then come to me. I already know. And I've been right where you are. And I want more desperately than anything for you to receive the fruit that is credited to your account. Father, we love you and we thank you. We thank you, Father, for your goodness and your mercy and your grace. We thank you for this gospel message that we have received at no cost. We thank you, Father, for the opportunity you've given us to partner with you. So, Father, I pray for us as a church family, you would cause us to be generous and joyful and even sacrificial in our giving toward you, recognizing it in and of itself as an act of worship. Father, we trust that you can do this. We ask it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.